You're now listening to Jake drop his copy of Northanger Abbey. everybody, welcome to The Booketing. My name is Nathan, I'm your humble and obedient host, the host with a little bit. We've got Brandon there. Hey. He is the Irish poet. That's right. And we've got Jake, the pastor who's a master of reading. It's me. And folks, we are, this is exciting. We are- We're not reading Dostoevsky. Yeah, that's exciting. We're not reading The Russian Hack. <laughs> <laughs> that's like We're finishing Austin's oeuvre. We are finishing our oeuvre. No, we didn't read Lady Susan. We didn't read all our juvenilia. Why not, Nathan? I don't know, Brandon, because I, for some reason, disdain it, as you can hear in my voice. Yeah. But it's a purely emotional argument. I don't know. I wouldn't want people to read my juvenilia, you know? I wouldn't want people to judge me based on something that I didn't think was fit for publishing. I try to be, I'm not, I'm not always perfect at this. I try to be humble and honest and open about my life and stuff. But when it comes to my creative work, I don't really want very many people to see anything that's in process. Jake gets to see some stuff that's in process because we work together, but that's years of trust. trust. Meredith, my wife, one of the big fights we've had is, no, I don't want you to look at my notebook. Mm. I don't want you looking at my phone notes app and it's not because I'm doing anything naughty. It's because I just, I, there's something so personal about a creative anything that's like you have to be really vulnerable with yourself and who you are and what you think is cool and what you think is interesting and what you think is funny. Oh, and yeah. it's like, if it doesn't work, no one's... Anyway, there you go, folks. I don't think that, you know, if, if Miss Austin didn't mean for it to be read, then if she'd have meant for it to be read, she would have... Published that. Given us wings. <laughs> so let's talk about this Jane Austen. Let's do it. Let's, Brandon, you've uh-huh. done this context now five times. Yeah. And you found a different angle each time. You uh-huh. come from Texas. You're the contextual Texan. Did I introduce? I feel like I'm getting to all this pretty quickly. Do no, we, this is good. This Keep is going. Good. Extended. Yeah. <laughs> Do we need to talk about nonsense for another two minutes? Jake, you're wearing a green, kind of dark forest green, dark green. Sure. Shirt. shirt uh, sweater. Thing. Yeah. It's a hoodie. It's a hoodie. Yeah. It's got a yeah. hood. You're like one of Robin Hood's merry men. You got a green hood. Yeah. Green hood. It's a, it's a, what would you call it? A waffle knit Henley hoodie. I would never so call it that. Waffle knit. It's a Henley because it's got the three buttons mm-hmm. here instead of like a zipper or nothing. Just like, it's not like a crew neck and it's got the hood. So it's a hoodie. Something like that. There you go. Well. And I got some new boots. Oh, and you got new boots. Let me see. Oh, wow. Ooh, those are fancy. Those are New boots. Jake, a man that can pull off the boots without being a complete fraud. <laughs> Just a partial fraud here. Wait, <laughs> what, wait what, what would make these boots fraudulent? A different man wearing them. Ah. A poser or a fraud. Someone who... What, if one wanted to, to be a poser wearing these boots, what would he be posing as? Someone who had the first idea about masculinity. Oh, I see. I think. Gotcha. 
It's a little bit like those. I understand. So, so it's it's more the rugged masculine nature of these boots that maybe put them into question. Yeah, you you have to instead of like the trendy hip. Yeah, 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 yeah. I don't mind them being trendy hip, except for the fact that they're trendy and hip because a bunch of yuppie idiots want to poses pretend like they've gone outdoors in their life. Yep, yep. Sort of like walking around with all your Patagonia gear. Exactly like that. Yeah, one hundred percent like that. Some people can do it. I mean, some people just throw that's like, that's the kind of person that wears boots or that's the kind of person that, now Jake, is it- I, n- I normally wear sneakers, soles, suede type things. Mm-hmm. And I needed something that could handle up some weather. So it's supposed to be rainy, snowy kind of today. So I busted out these guys. I got these guys because you can't wear suede in snow. That's a bad idea. Mm-hmm. Can't get them all wet and nasty and falling apart. So, so I needed something beside my, my suede. Yeah. <clears throat> and they, you know, Boots. they look good. You pull them off. No Thanks. one's going to think, appreciate look that. at that fraud or anything like that. That's good. I'm glad that that thought never even crossed your mind. No, no, no. <laughs> the word fraud <laughs> and Jake and, and poser and, and poser. And none of those things. words. Yeah. Is you think Brandon's done preparing for context yet? Or do we <laughs> yeah, still fine, keep do talking about my, vamping about my, my poser boots? boots. Yeah. <laughs> you know, people, I, I have gotten several, I've had several people over the years say they like the fashion check-ins, you know, back in the early iteration of the show, I'd say, it's Jake. He's wearing the sweater. He's wearing the this. Yeah. You know. And they uh, miss that, huh? And people, some people miss that. Not very I would many. Say, I would say those are, <laughs> not very many, I'm sure. <laughs> I'd say those are the two most notable things about my outfit. I've got this uh, sweater hoodie thing on and I've got these rugged-ish looking boots. They're not cowboy boots, but one could be, one could mistake them for that if you couldn't see that they were also Chelsea boots. Man, I know a lot about this stuff. <laughs> you do. Yes. Is this conversation making it sound more like you're the rugged boot-wearing man that I described you as? I'm thinking not. I'm thinking it makes me sound a little bit more like uh, you got a poser a in the front. Now, listen, Come folks, on. Jake's not a poser in the front. What are you talking about over there, Brandon? Oh, Your slacks from 100 years ago? Listen, Sorry. you guys come to Evansville. I'll take you out to my parents' place. We'll hop on a four-wheeler, and we'll go riding through the woods on their back 40. That sounds like fun. You guys can come I'll to show my you property. The old farm equipment. We'll go into a cave. My uncle might be there working on farm equipment. We can go in, and we can help him out. That sounds awesome. Let's do it. Yep. Boom. And there will be thorns piercing my stupid Mr. Rogers sneakers, but your boots will repel. That's right. Those thorns. That's right. There'll be thistles stuck in Brandon's, what do you call those things? <laughs> what are those things where each of the toes is individualized? Those sort of <laughs> uh, oh, shoes. Oh, vib- the, the, the vibram. What are those things called? The brand is vibram, but I'm losing the five fingers. Yep. The vibram the, five finger shoes. There'll, there'll be thistles stuck in Brandon's vibram five finger shoes. Yeah. But anyway, yeah. Brandon, you're the contextual Texan. You're getting to do some context for us, right, my friend? Yeah, let's do it. On Jane Austen. You've done it five times before, six times. Maybe you'll actually get it right this time and we won't have to read Austen anymore. Yeah, maybe I'll get it right this time. I was trying to let this site let me on. It looked awesome. It's the Broadmoor context of Jane Austen. But you got to pay Were for you gonna it. Were you going to cheat? And you no, it just had comments? interactive maps and stuff like that, but Ooh. it wasn't going to let me. You got to pay for this. You got to pay how for How much? I don't know. I can't find anything that tells me how much it well, is. Well, if our patrons like, had us up to $2,000 by now, Brandon, we'd have you, access. You could this pay for that and justify that cost. That's true. That's true. Patrons, <coughs> you know what to do. That's when we're going to start paying Brandon, just to be clear. And that's yeah. when we'll be re- re- ready player two. 
Oh, yeah. That's oh, payment so if enough you want right Brandon there. to have access to greater tools and also to read Ready Player Two. Mm-hmm. Who doesn't want me to have access to Do go to patreon.com forward slash booking and sign up today. Yep. If you want me Pushes and Jake to $2, a month. vamp about boots for 10 minutes while Brandon tries to log into tries a to site get, with a... Kick it in. Yeah, that's all I was doing. Sorry, I'm, I'm ready to go, guys. We, we can <laughs> do this. Then, then, you know, don't continue. Yeah, don't. don't. We'll just so keep talking about here. my boots and this how is... I'm definitely not a poser. Now, Jake, your boots, are they made for walking? These boots are made for walking, and yeah. that's just what they'll do. Now, those boots wouldn't be walking over me, would they? No. Maybe one day. Brandon, they'd be walking all over you. Ah, uh, that's fair enough. The, that song and, is... Unless somebody, you know, unless our, until our, our patrons get us up to $2,000 a month, then Brandon will be a paid employee, and then these boots will definitely not be walking all over you. No, that would be an HR nope, problem. Nope, that would be a problem. <laughs> yep. It's not going to happen. Somebody. I can only justify walking all over Brandon when he is not an employee. Yeah, usually yeah, in a lot of organizations it works the other way around. You got to hire the person before <laughs> then you, you can, can walk all over walk them. all over them. But in our, but Orhorn's a great place to work. I can testify. And yeah. Jake is incredibly cruel to anyone that doesn't work. There. <laughs> That's right. Volunteers? <laughs> nope. No. <laughs> you don't want to be a Warren volunteer, no, guys. No, believe me, you're better off being paid. So, so many, so many resources. Man, that song is cool, but then it's so dorky when she says, all right, Boots, start walking. <laughs> yes. Does she do that? Yes. Oh. All right, Boots, start, start walking. walking. All right, Brandon, start yeah, talking. All right, Brandon, start, start talking. talking. <laughs> all right. Let's just start with her life. She was born in Steventon, Hampshire in England. Oh, man. If only I had an interactive map, it would just bring that Hampshire How to life. How close is that to Grantham? I was looking to Grantham. Mm-hmm. I want to know that answer right now. Yep. Can you can you find that for me? Grantham. And if you could be interacting with something while you're doing it. I really want the answer to that question. It is 162 miles. 162 miles. Okay, yeah. so two and a half hours. Why do you want to know that? Why do I want to know that? Because the University of Evansville owns a castle. <laughs> yes, I've heard about this. Yes. I in remember. Grantham. In Grantham, England. It's called Harlexton, and are it's you, awesome. Are you going to visit? I don't have any cause to visit, but the University of Evansville, check this out, has the top-ranked foreign exchange program for all of Europe wow. and the seventh globally, and it has it owns a college in Grantham, England, and you can study abroad there as a student at University of Evansville in this amazing English castle. And why would it's you? really cool. Yeah. Look up Harlexton on your computer just so that you can tell people, oh, wow. And a bunch of horror movies have been filmed there and stuff like that at Harlexton College. Harlexton um, yeah. College. It's a little bit like Hogwarts. Yeah. That's awesome. Oh, that's the house from The Haunting. It is. The horror movie, The Haunting. That is a, not a great movie, but a fantastic location for yeah, the movie. It's That's amazing. An awesome house. And, and the University of Evansville in Evansville feels, it's got a very Hogwarts feel to it too, if you've ever been. It's got sort of the same vibe as Harlexton College, mm-hmm. but it's owned, by, it's owned by the University of Evansville. So even if you look up Harlexton College, you'll see, you know, even in the image searches, University of Evansville stuff so that's awesome nice they Anyhow, used it, they used it for the 2020 version of the secret garden it looks like yeah there you go i mean if anything in evansville can be used for the secret garden that's 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 pretty that's cool. cool that's, that's pretty amazing guys yeah. live so harlaxing college so if you or 
you've got kids and you want to send them to a great private institution where they'll be a part of a great church, you can send them to the University of Evansville and they can spend a semester as a student there. They can spend a semester at Harlexton College and be two and a half hours driving distance from the place of Jane Austen's birth. Steventon, mm-hmm. which is just a short drive from South Downs National Park and not too far from Brighton, which makes an appearance in Brighton Prejudice, right? Isn't that where they go is Brighton? They go to Brighton and like every one of them. Well, they always go to Bath. Bath is they always Bath. Go to Bath. But it, where do they go to Brighton? Brighton is, is that Persuasion? Is that where the lady jumps on the rocks? That might be. Brighton. The, Let's see. Brighton. I bet I can ask. In Pride and Prejudice, it is a place Lydia Bennett rushes off to. Ah, yes. <laughs> I will bow. <laughs> yes, yes, yes. But also, hang on. It seems like there's other places where it's the watering place featured in novels like Pride and Prejudice. That's all it says. But it's, it implies that it could have been another, so I think you might be right, actually. Yours is probably a more obscure reference than mine. It's really not worth pursuing that. Okay. <laughs> it's, it's only a two and a half hour, so it's a two and a half hour drive to London from Grantham as well, and it's really close to the sea. So. That's awesome. Let's go. Let's re-enroll in University of Evansville. Isn't that cool? Yeah. We, so. we were all recently enrolled in the University of Evansville. It's got an excellent Corey. theater I'm and drama. I'm making fun of you for saying re-enroll. Oh, yeah, re-enroll. <laughs> Thank you, Nathan. Um, I'm so distracted by this World Wide Web. I'm just now <laughs> discovering the World Wide Web. Oh, yeah, that, 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 and that the, thing's... And all the wonderful information it's pretty it great. And, and what's great is that it's a good time for conservatives on the World Wide mm-hmm. Web. It's a really That's great what time I've for heard. us. We've got all so these So she platforms. was born in Steventon on December 16th. <laughs> we've, we've got her out of the uterus. That's how far we've got. 1775, and her daddy was a rector. Her daddy was a rector. <laughs> He came from a fairly respected family of wool merchants. Yeah, my daddy was a um, rector from a respected family. This is key to, I mean, really, as, as long as you understand that about Jane Austen, you kind of understand her background, how she was raised. She had a fairly happy home. They had a lot of access to books and stories, and she and her siblings would reen- would enact, reenact, would enact, enact, would perform plays that they had written in their home, which, so the scene from, is it Persuasion, where they do the big play? No, 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 Jeremy, that would be Mansfield Park. Oh, yeah, Mansfield Park, Park thank you. Friend. There you go. See? Takes place at Did you Mansfield even Park? read these books with us, Brandon? No, yeah. I didn't. <laughs> I didn't think so. So it's Mansfield Park, where, and so a lot of the things that she's writing about in her books is... Or Womansfeld Park. Or Womansfeld Park, We don't yeah. want to use well, gendered language. And. Man, man and Womansfeld Park. Man and Woman's... I think we should put the woman all first. Amen and all woman. Amen and all Woman's Park. Yeah, did you guys hear about that? The yes, congressman? we did. Oh, we know all about that one, buddy. Yep. Prayed to Brahma. <laughs> mm-hmm. Yep. That the, that, the, that the chambers of Congress would have perpetual peace... Two yeah. days before, a guy stood in there with, with bullhorns. Yeah. Uh, yeah. It's hilarious. I mean, it's almost like he caused- It's almost like we talked about that on another podcast episode. Oh. Not the Jane Austen one. Oh, yeah. No. Well, then I don't know why we're talking about it. It's not a sanity it. podcast. So, she was born into a quiet life, and that's the life that she had, even though it was a very tumultuous time period in history. I mean, you had the, the French Revolution that was happening. You had the War of 1812 that would come later. You would have the Napoleonic invasions. That <laughs> Why were, are all these conflicts making you laugh? <laughs> uh, I don't know. I don't know why they're making me laugh. It's hilarious. It's People just, died. Yeah. It's just, it's so fascinating that, I guess what's fascinating about it is two things. One, that she managed to live such a quiet 
unassuming life during a time period. I don't think that when we think of Jane Austen, we think that she lived during any time that was as insanely wild politically as she actually lived. No. I mean, so Tell the Two Cities, which we'll be reading later this year, mm-hmm. happened when she was born or when she was a young girl. And then War and Peace was happening when she was in her adulthood writing her novels. So all these things were occurring during Jane Austen's life. But she the made, subjects, not the books not, being written. Yeah, but the but, sub the what the books were about. Right. Was ha- and that's it's insane that she's she had this quiet, unassuming life where she never married. She lived in this at first with her father and her mother. You know, he he was from this respected family, but he wasn't the oldest, so he didn't get the land. He was went off and was a rector, which was involved with the church. And so he provided fairly well for his family. And so most of the heroines in Jane Austen novels are duplicates or replications of what she was used to. Like that was her life. And that's what she would have been familiar with going to Brighton, to Bath, to Bath, all these things, to balls in the area, to the young men who had the landed, the landed gentry coming and visiting their estates as well. But that was, that really was her life. It was just that quiet, that kind of short. I mean, she died when she was what, 40 something. 42, I think. Yeah. Yeah. And I don't know, I guess it's never hit me before. Just the fact that she did live a life that's very similar to her heroes here. And yet, like all these other books we've read are about things that were happening when she was alive. And those things are wild, but Mm -hmm. she avoided all of that. My point being, and this is something we'll talk about over and over again with Jane Austen, is that even despite the fact that she didn't go off to war, she didn't, or the wars in it, she wouldn't have. She was a woman at the time. I don't know what's going on, guys. Oh, another interesting thing. James <laughs> Austin was a great writer. <laughs> just like Elliot Page is a great actor. Guys, my brain's not working. Oh, it is. It's just my tongue's not working, apparently. I think it's working. It's just working poorly. It's, thank you, Jake. You know, the, <laughs> the words were formed just fine. I don't know why you're blaming your tongue. I'm, <laughs> yeah. I'm feeling like this is more a brain thing. <laughs> this is a brain thing. Oh, I don't know what's going on. I got ahead of myself. Me, what's going on is that we've already recorded four podcasts today. Yeah. <laughs> hey, I, was, I was seeing another digression, but it's not a digression. It's also, so the romantic era was also happening while she was writing. Mm-hmm. When she was 25 and had already... had a bit of a name for herself. It was right when Mary Shelley, all those people were also doing their crazy stuff, right? Mm -hmm. And again, she avoided it all. She didn't have that life. Why do I keep making this point? Well, because like I said, we'll, we'll talk a lot about this and it's kind of the thing we keep saying about Jane Austen is that she was able to have the perspicacity, the wisdom and the discernment of someone who saw all those things more than all those people and yet never really leave her small community. Right, never have the life that would have um, allowed her to write War and Peace, that would have allowed her to write Tell of Two Cities, that would have allowed her to write the crazy romantic poems, right? But she didn't need that to have the sort of wisdom and insight that she had, right? Mm-hmm. And that's just, it's amazing to really realize that about her and to understand that in that context, she was still able to nurture this genius that resonates with us today. There you go. That's context. Yeah, great. <laughs> that was good. Where do we go from there? We can just kind of hit some of the highlights of her life here. Let's do that real fast. How's that sound? That sounds, yeah, that, sounds great. Yeah. She was born in Stevenson, Hampshire. She was the seventh of eight children. And she... I don't think it ever lodged with me in all these contexts that she was that low in the child. Yeah, she was order. not the oldest. She kind of has the sensibility of one of the older ones. But no, she was. she would have been right where Mary was in the chain of... 
I think it's because our heroines are almost always the firstborn or the secondborn, and there's almost always a bunch of young siblings that I, I just always assumed that was her position in the family. That's interesting that it wasn't. Yeah. I don't know what we make of that. I, I don't know that I have to make of it, much to, but, my middle children are generally good observers. So I guess you could maybe make that hackneyed point, but. When she was in her 20s, she began to write what would become her later novels, 1795. Here, I'll tell you the name of what it was first, and you tell me what it became. Okay. Eleanor and Marion. That would be Sense and Sensibility. First Impressions. That'd be uh, Pride and Prejudice. Susan. That'd be Lady Susan. Nope. Becomes. Northanger Abbey? Northanger Abbey. Susan was Catherine's name? Yeah. And so. Good change. Susan was, one. so this is one of the examples of one of her earliest drafts that changed significantly, but the elements of what would become Northanger Abbey were there with Susan. 1801, her family moves to Bath. Wait, wait, sorry. I was looking at the first page of this book where she's commenting on kids in large families in birth order, just on page one of chapter one. Yeah. That, that's interesting in and of itself, but I missed what you said about, were you talking about the order of her work? I was saying that in the 90s, she began what would become these later novels. Yeah. So this is the third? This is the third thing that she began to create. Okay. This is in the last one that she- Last one to publish, yes. Last one to publish, but the first one to finish. Yeah. Northanger Abbey and Persuasion get published together, right? Posthumously, yeah. Yeah. Posthumously together after death. And so Northanger Abbey was the third to start, the first to finish, and the last to be published. And arguably her best, she started first, Sense and Sensibility. Mm-hmm. Second best, she started second, Pride and Prejudice. Huh. And then this is the third one. Interesting. I don't know, I don't know where we'd rank it. I guess are we okay. going to rank her books? We, we're we're going to litigate all of this in a future episode. In the next couple episodes, we're going to do like a Austin. I mean, she's not Dostoevsky. I guess we can just get that off. No. No, she's not. <laughs> Would she have been better had she been? <laughs> Catherine was four of six or four of 10. Catherine was number four. Okay. Eleanor is the oldest in Sense and Sensibility. Lizzie is the second in Pride and Prejudice. Fanny, I think, is, I don't know what number Fanny is, but I feel like she's one of the older ones. The Persuasion Chick, she's actually maybe number two or number three. So, according to her mockery of Anne Radcliffe, the expectation would be that Catherine would be the last. Interesting. As opposed to the first. And that her mother would probably have died in childbirth or something like that. That definitely seems like a trope that has stayed to this day. And so instead, she's a middle child from a large family instead of a small one. This is funny. The inversions. Sorry to derail us there. I was just trying to piece together where this fit because I think I had read or seen that Northanger Abbey was the first novel she ever completed. And so I was confused when you said it was the third that she started, but I think that still jives or maybe I got my information wrong. Well, now I'm remembering something, which is... I know she submitted it to, maybe you're getting here, Brandon, she submitted Northanger Abbey to a publisher pretty relatively early in her life and then it got tied up for like 10 years. Yeah, it's that Richard Crosby, right? Yeah. Um, I mean, so here's, this actually is pretty interesting, this introduction here. So Northanger Abbey is the ideal introduction to Jane Austen's novels because we see the author defining the parameters of her craft. Hmm. The text took shape in the fall of 1798 and by 1803 was a manuscript titled Susan. So there we go. Right. Richard Crosby, a London publisher, bought it outright for 10 pounds, but for some reason never produced the book. In 1813, so you're right, so we don't really know why, but for 10 years it sat there with him. In 1813, Austin bought the manuscript back from Crosby for the same 10 pounds, but never published it. So that's, Which, the, that's the story, right? Just there. to be clear, Pride and Prejudice came out in 1813. 
Yeah. So 10 years before <clears throat> she publishes her second group. Well, let's see when Sense and Sensibility came out. Well, Sense and Sensibility was 1911 or 1811. 1811. Yeah, yeah. So 10 years before any of her books were published, she submits Northanger Abbey, approximately 10 years. Yeah. And then this guy just sits on it for some reason. She gets it back after and then she sits her on greatest it. work has been published. Then she sits on it for a while. She revises yeah. it. That's one of the, it's a mystery of her life. I mean, that's what you find. Do you with, think that she was in, think she felt bad? Maybe. It's such a direct, unapologetic, this is why Anne Radcliffe sucks. I yes. think she, if you look at her juvenilia, which I haven't done in any great depth, so I can't pretend to be an expert, but it seems like she wrote a lot of stuff that was just hilarious parodies for her family and friends. Yeah. And I assume this is what, that's what this started as. One of as. the better of those. And to me, it felt like, I was, I was actually thinking on the drive here, to me, it feels like the transition from a uh, critic to, to artist. That's what it, that's what it feels like. That's what it felt like to me. It's like, even if you think of our work, mm-hmm. when we've gone, our move to storytelling started in satire. Yep. That's true. Right. It started first with direct criticism of bad people into skits and sketches into now we're telling our own stories. And it was a pretty smooth evolution if you actually look at it that way. Right. And this felt like a real step in the process of I am going to write something that's lampooning what I hate and realize actually I can do the good thing. Mm-hmm. I can I actually, I, I, just, I, God, I, I can do, do I can do better. I can do. Yeah. Yeah. And I should, it's sort of like somebody, it, Isaac Watts, dad, when he was complaining all the time about the hymns and crap that they sang at church said, I'm tired of hearing you complain, shut up and do better. And then he said, okay, and became the greatest hymn writer to ever live. Yeah. And it feels like kind of the same thing may have happened to Austin around the time of working on Northanger Abbey of stop complaining about Radcliffe and do better. Mm-hmm. All right. Oh, yeah, that's become right. the greatest novelist. Yep. She was in her 20s when she first started writing this. I mean, in the late 1700s, you're looking at two different possibilities. You're, you have the rise of the Gothic novel. You can write that sort of thing. Mm-hmm. Or the new sentimental novel. I mean, we're reading one of them right this year. What, which one? So, uh, Rebecca's not one of them. I'm thinking of Pamela. Oh, the one yeah. That, the one that Stern made fun of. Maybe in like season 20. Or <laughs> yeah. And, but the other option is to write a satire or parody because you had Stern, you had Fielding, you had Pope, all these guys who had made their careers on writing satires and parodies of things. And so she was, she was well-read. Her family, like I said, was a literary family. It was a very lively, happy family. And so she would have been introduced to all this stuff. And being a young writer, I think that most of us who write know that when you're younger, you do a lot of imitating. Yep. Mm-hmm. Like most of your writing, you try to sound like other people because you still don't know what your voice should be like. And so, yeah, makes sense. And so according to this here, the, there's still a mystery as to whether or not when she bought it back from Crosby, whether she even did any changes. Or oh, that's if, interesting. Or if, or if we just have an unedited, like if she just bought it and never touched it. And when she died, her brother was the one who published it. If we just now have basically the untouched 1803 version. See, to so. my ear, it feels like she did change it because I have read enough of her juvenilia to know her juvenilia is like all that kind of winking, break the fourth wall tone, which Northanger Abbey has a lot of. But to me, it feels like somebody with a little bit of maturity went and cleaned it up and made it more of a piece. And But if she submitted it after she submitted Pride and Prejudice, she'd already matured. 
Yeah, that's what I'm saying. I'm, I, I think so, when she got it back and like after Pride and Prejudice and all that was published, she probably did do something to it. As wait, wait, so uh, I'm, maybe I'm still botching the timeline. She submits it to a publisher in 1803 for whatever weird reason. He holds on to it for 10 years, doesn't do anything with when it. When did she submit Sense and Sensibility and Pride and Prejudice? They're both, I don't know about submission. They're both but published in 1811. 11 and, and then 12 or 13. Okay. So Sense and Sensibility, Pride and Prejudice in the interim are published. Then she gets Northanger Abbey back. To me, it feels like at that point with some of her wisdom and discernment and everything that she had, she must have cleaned it up a little bit because it does read better than if it was actually just yeah. the best piece of her juvenile her juvenile yeah when would the juvenilia have been like if you if we have dates for juvenilia that would have been early 20s or late teens stuff like that right year give me a year if we have 1803 as a date let's see jane austen yeah. Juvenilia. Other thing I saw about this Richard Crosby is he might have bought her book originally because he realized that people like Fanny, Fanny Burney, was that her name? Things like that. Women were having, were becoming known as writers that mm-hmm. you could actually sell. And so he probably bought her book and then decided against. But she published under it. a pen name for the first couple of actual published ones, right? Trying to, as a man? I think so. At the very least, I think it was anonymous. Yeah. Like Sense and Sensibility and Pride and Prejudice. That's right. But he would have bought it. But that wouldn't have meant that he would have had plans to necessarily use a pen name or an anonymous name. So Jake, one of her juvenilia works was written, the most famous one, it looks like was written in 1791. So that puts it a good 10 years plus. 12 years. Before, and she she would have been 15 years old. Yeah. So she didn't actually submit Northanger Abbey until she was in her 20s and presumably had a little bit of a handle on. See, to me, this just feels like the stepping stone between the juvenilia and Pride and Prejudice. I'm ready to accept that this is untouched. This is just that, yeah. Or at least very small. Because you're talking 10 years on both sides. Right. Right. So if this is smack dab in the middle of her most well-known juvenilia piece and Pride and Prejudice, this feels like that to me. See, to me... Because you're talking about 12, 12 years since the juvenilia and less than 10 to Pride and Prejudice. Yeah. Pride and, Pride and Prejudice is a massive leap forward from Northanger Abbey yeah. in terms of wisdom and characterization and style and touch. I agree. I, I think I would, where I might argue a little bit is Northanger Abbey feels, while it feels very slight and while it feels very winking and parodic and all that, it feels pretty well accomplished. And of a piece in a way that something like Sense and Sensibility, for example, actually doesn't. Hmm. So like Sense and Sensibility aims much higher, but it also, it's, you know, you never get to spend any time with Eleanor's boyfriend, the Hugh Grant character. Yeah. There's, there's just over weird oversights and stuff like that. This Northanger Abbey feels like a very successfully accomplished, like Le- she, she aims small, but she also misses small. misses small. I would say that we probably have parody sketches that you could say the same thing of as opposed to certain episodes of yes that's true the bill that once you've done enough parody it's actually easier to n- to n- nail that and you're going to have to make other mistakes when you s- start to aim larger and learn from those yes. too yeah i don't know it's a fascinating yeah, we, argument we, yeah we can only fascinating discussion to have. we'll, so a- we'll ask her when we're throwing the pigskin around with her and <laughs> yeah and, we'll ask her yeah the afterlife but no winner to this argument i just think I definitely think you're right that it it occupies that space. It must have in her career, in her trajectory. I just think as as the work that's come it, down to us, it feels a little bit more polished. Than- it, it only 
it only matters insofar as did she ever, in, excuse me, did she ever intend to publish it? Yeah. After she bought it back, did she feel like, well, that time has passed and I'm beyond that now and I'm just going to hold on to this and not bother? Or am I going to clean this up and prepare to publish this at some point? And to me, it feels more like eh, it's time passed and it was what it was when it was. And Okay, so I just actually went to Wikipedia, which, you know, Wikipedia comes with its stuff but it's all a bunch of communists anyway well it is a bunch of communists and uh, thanks a lot jake now they'll probably deplatform us so wikipedia says with absolutely no source given so take this with a gigantic grain of salt there is evidence that austin further revised the novel in 1816 to 1817 with the intention of having it published she rewrote sections but we do know she renamed the main so so she did at least revise one thing because we know the novel was originally called susan when it was submitted it became catherine so i imagine if she's going to go through and the she had to at least get yep. edited. Yep, it got edited. And then after that's, her death, that's victory. Often's brother Henry gave the novel its final name, so he actually named it. Abby. So she may not have actually had time because of her death to do everything that she wanted to. Well, I had maybe mistaken because when Brandon was saying this was the third one that she started, mm-hmm. so she'd already started since his ability and whatever, but it was the first that she completed and submitted. But it was originally called Susan. Right. Well, Pride and Prejudice was also originally when she started called First uh, Impressions. First Impressions. And since Sensibility was originally called uh, Eleanor and Marianne. Eleanor and Marianne. Yeah. So by the time she was ready to publish them, she had already gone back and changed all of that or got changed when she submitted or whatever. Right. So I just assumed the similar process had already happened with Northanger Abbey. And by the time she had published it, it had gone, Char- Catherine had. Susan had turned to Catherine and it became Northanger Abbey, but right. I guess I'm wrong. Well, at least know that she was thinking about it because here's something from 1816. For Northanger Abbey, probably the first book she prepared for publication, Jane Austen provided an advertisement by the authoress pointing out the quotidian nature of the background and details of her fiction. She was readying the work for publication in 1816, just after the end of the Napoleonic Wars. During the last year of her life, but she had, she declared, completed it in 1803. Having actually conceived it even earlier, she wrote, hmm. Some observation is necessary upon those parts of the work which 13 years have made comparatively obsolete. The public are entreated to bear in mind that that 13 years have passed since it was finished, many more since it was begun, and that during that period, places, manners, books, and opinions have undergone considerable changes. So even there, she's admitting that if she has altered anything, it's not much. Because... And she's also wanting to qualify... Yeah, like obviously I write it completely differently now, but Yeah. Yeah. Things have changed, manners have changed. Interesting. Yeah. Well, you know, the yeah, the romantics, they changed everything. Mm-hmm. So season of love. Mm-hmm. <laughs> That's it. There it's we context. go. Hey, we definitely no, got some inter- different context, but Brandon, you probably still got stuff Brandon to say. Brandon, solve the answer. Yep. Yeah. Solve the answer. Brandon, solve the answer. Solve the answer. The answer. Yeah. <laughs> Finally. Jeopardy. The answer has, <laughs> the been, answer has been solved. Solved. <laughs> it's during this period, exists. actually, when she was writing these that she had a mm. mental breakdown when someone tried to execute her. She met Tom LaFoy. I think <laughs> we talked about this guy before. <laughs> she got... He would later be a barrister, but there's evidence that they probably were very interested in one another, but then he would eventually go off and they would just fade and yeah, nothing so came of it. A million fanfics were written. Yeah. And so that happened in, during this period. A lot of those letters were actually burned by her sister, right? And those particular ones that there was one that 
survive that said something like, oh, I can't tell you how scandalously we behaved. There was much dancing and sitting down together. Ooh. <laughs> so, yeah. so in the typical ironic, funny Jane Austen fashion, you know. Yeah. Or was so, it? That's true. <laughs> <laughs> sitting down. <laughs> dancing. <laughs> I don't know if they were too exclusive. It might have been yeah. a little bit of us. People are like, well, hey, look at them. They're an mm-hmm. item. Man. It's a little That's scandalous, a little talk of the town. They yeah. might be together. Yep. They headed towards marriage, you know. Yeah. In 1801, they moved to Bath and she meets Reverend Blackall, but he d- dies before he and Jane can become formally engaged. So she was in- almost engaged to someone else. Did you know this fact? I didn't remember that. No. I've never. I remember that time. I don't remember before. that. I wonder if it's a lie. We should and verify that. What is this from Wikipedia? First time no, in six contexts that I've heard that. I, mean, I think it's kind of part of the legend that she could write great endings for everybody else, but See, was... if you look him up on Wikipedia, he doesn't even come up. Yeah. That's interesting. Let's figure this out. The idea that Jane Austen actually settled on somebody is an intriguing notion that slightly rewrites a lot what I think of we've stuff. been assuming about your head, your, our head cannon. Yeah, <laughs> exactly. <laughs> Reverend Blackall, Austin. Maybe it's her sister. Okay, here we go. Here we go. This makes more sense of it. This is from an Austin site. Samuel Blackall was a clergyman that Jane's friend Anne Lafroy wanted to set her up with, but obviously Jane never warmed to the idea. So that's obviously. it. She and Lafroy th- showed me a letter from her friend a few weeks ago, towards the end of which was a sentence to this effect, I am very sorry to hear Mrs. Austin's illness. It would give me particular pleasure to have an opportunity of improving my acquaintance with the family with the hope of creating to myself a nearer interest, but at present I cannot indulge my expectation of it. This is Jane Austen talking about his response. This is rational after this is Austen talking now. There is less love and more sense in it than sometimes appeared before, and I am very well satisfied. It will all go on exceedingly well and decline away in a very reasonable manner. There seems to be no likelihood of his coming into Hampshire this Christmas, and it is therefore most probable that our indifference will soon be mutual. So there you go. There's my Jane Austen. Yeah. Our indifference will soon be mutual. Our indifference will soon be mutual. <laughs> that's, an, that's an awesome That's a pretty line. great line. <laughs> <laughs> so anyway, so there's that, that these people misqualify as a close engagement, but it doesn't sound like Jane was too interested in it. No. There were not so. many of those in Northanger Abbey. Yeah. The great lines. Yeah. No, nah, there were a couple, but no, not like which it, the pearls. Which is another things. argument for argument being for J- younger. Yeah, yeah. Her father died in 1804, which would have been a year after Susan was sold. The novel. <laughs> <For Susan. laughs> and then they moved to Southampton and eventually they moved back to Hampshire to a comfortable cottage provided by their brother. Then we get to her publication years, which is 1811 and... When she have Sense and Sensibilities first published, she writes Mansfield Park during the, that period, but 1813, Pride and Prejudice is published, 1814, Mansfield Park, 1814 uh, through 15, she's writing Emma, and also Persuasion, and then 1816, Emma gets published. That's the same year that Henry Austin goes bankrupt, and then Jane also contracts her fatal illness, and then in 1817, she dies. Really, probably the only other thing that we need to talk about with context for this book is I guess it's not just a small thing. It's kind of a big thing. It's the idea of the Gothic novel. Indeed. Because that's kind of... I've been looking forward to this. Yeah, the essential to this idea. So I figured the way we could handle this is... I don't know if you know this. I'm not a fan of Victorian literature. Yeah. And so I've never read a a Gothic novel to my knowledge in my life. Well, so most of my knowledge of Gothic novels comes from Northanger Abbey making fun of them. Well, which I appreciate. a lot of this was worth making fun of. And, And the tropes that you see in like any... 
yeah. ghost stories yeah. and stuff like that. So we've we've talked we've actually talked about the Gothic tradition before. We did it with probably with both Mary Shelley and we, Bram Stoker. So we've done this we've done this before. It's Gothic fiction had its origins with a lot both horror and the romance novels that were coming out of the 1700s. And also the sentimental novels as well, because what Gothic does is it takes the tropes of horror and it kind of takes the tropes of the sentimental novel and it combines them into this really, like, think Edgar Allan Poe, but with a, with a love interest at heart. <laughs> That's kind of what you get with the Gothic tradition. So Edgar Allan Poe is inheriting a lot of what we get with the Gothic. But when you talk about the Gothic period, in literature, you're really talking about right before Austin was born in 1764, you had Horace Walpole, or Walpole, who wrote... The Castle of Entranto, of course. Castle of Entranto. And Anne Radcliffe, who they heavily make fun of in this book, who wrote The Mysteries of Udolpho. Mm-hmm. Let's see. So Mary Shelley took up this style, Edgar Allan Poe, Charles Dickens, took it up, interestingly enough, to kind of parody it himself with A Christmas Carol. Because you have a little bit of the Gothic tradition there, but he's yeah. kind of turning it on its head and making fun of it as well. It does have elements, as we'll find when we do Arthur Arthurian legend. It has a lot of, like, some of the Arthurian weirdness to it with the Grail. Yeah, yeah. And so, what's essential to it is a big house or a castle, where you have something that's either mysterious and dangerous, or you have something that's quasi supernatural occurring, and there has to be some mystery to it. That's why I say a lot of the Arthurian gets wrapped up into this because we're going to actually see that with like the Castle Perilous and stuff. Yeah, with, those guys are always stumbling girl. across castles. Yeah, with and you have just these stuff. weird places where you'll have strange things happening, like suddenly the spear of Joseph of Arimathea is going to be there or something like that. They're also obsessed with the macabre and the morbid, so you'll have a lot of death and especially like you'll have a mysterious figure who owns this castle that has some secret that he's hiding. And so, as far as the books we've read, Jane Eyre, even though it starts mm-hmm. out as like a school book, you know, a school book for girls, and then it becomes a gothic novel because mm-hmm. it has all the elements. It has the house. It has the strange, mysterious man who's got, got this secret, secret that he's hiding. hiding yeah, yeah. She has to figure it out. And then at the end, they're in love, but there's something almost profane and about their love, right? And so- yeah. I mean, without putting too fine a point upon it, a lot of the gothic at the time was very similar to like modern romance porn for women, right? Like the it's no, it's no surprise that Twilight and those sorts of things have continued that tradition today, right? And mm-hmm. because it allows you to feel as though you're entering into what is uh, forbidden, yeah, forbidden without actually feeling like you've done anything forbidden, right? Mm-hmm. So you get to do the dank castle, the the scary low mm-hmm. lighting. You get to have the sexual undertones, but it's actually all at the service of, another, of, a, of this story. And so that's kind of the rise of the Gothic. And it was hand in hand with the rise of the novel in Britain. It became like the popular novel. And so Walpole and Anne Radcliffe were kind of the two notorious examples of the this. Very popular writers, but people who had taste like Jane Austen would have hated them because of the name they gave to novel writing. And so when she gives her, and I'm sure we'll talk about it later when we get to talking about the novel, when she gives her defense of the novel, she realizes fully that this gothic tradition is what's kind of keeping the novel from the respect that it would come to have in the 1800s. Because this is what people think of when they think of a novel. They think of just this kind of garbage that people want to go out and be thrilled by. 
And so. Yeah, Walpole, when he published in Toronto, did it, I believe, under a pen name, just to, this is a lark and it, maybe it'll make some money, but it's not going to, like, I don't want to be, and I think it got so popular so fast that he ended up owning it. But So just to kind of give you an example, here are some quotes from it. He was persuaded he could know no happiness, but in the society of one with whom he could forever indulge the melancholy that had taken possession of his soul. Mm. Mm. That's so sweet. But alas, my lord, what is blood? What is nobility? We are all reptiles, miserable, sinful creatures. It is piety alone that can distinguish us from the dust whence we sprung and whither we must return. Shakespearean. Yeah, yeah, very Shakespearean. Let's see. And so you get these just macabre tales with kind of extreme language and poorly written, over the top, sentimental, playing off of those feelings. Here's an example from Anne Radcliffe. Um, I'll just read. This is from volume two, chapter five. And you'll hear definite overtones of Dracula here. At length, the travelers began to ascend among the Apennines, the immense pine forests which at that period overhung these mountains, and between which the road wound, excluded all view but of the cliffs aspiring above, except that now and then an opening through the dark woods allowed the eye a momentary glimpse of the country below. The gloom of these shades, their solitary silence, except when the breeze swept over their summits, the tremendous precipices of the mountains that came partially to the eye each assisted to raise the solemnity of Emily's feelings into awe. And so that's actually an aspect of it too, kind of this con- confrontation with the supernatural or the sublime. So like the landscape with uh, Dracula when mm-hmm. you're going towards his castle. She saw only images of gloomy grandeur or of dreadful sublimity around her. Other images, equally gloomy and equally terrible, <laughs> gleamed on her imagination. I don't actually have to make the person feel like it's terrible. Yeah. I just have to keep saying how yeah. gloomy and terrible <laughs> it was. It was gloomy and terrible and <laughs> sublime. It made her feel gloomy and terrible. And sublime. <laughs> she was going, she scarcely knew whither, under the dominion of a person, from whose arbitrary disposition she had already suffered so much. I mean, there's a little bit of like S&M stuff with these stories as oh, well. Oh, it's definitely... Yeah. Yeah. Wish fulfillment yeah. yeah. Yeah, to marry perhaps a man who possessed neither her affection nor esteem, or to endure beyond the hope of succor whatever punishment revenge and that Italian revenge might decree dictate. <laughs> the more she considered what might be the motive of the journey, the more she became convinced that it was for the purpose of concluding her nuptials with Count Morano, with that secrecy which her resolute resistance had made necessary to the honor, if not to the safety, of Montani. From the deep solitudes in which she was emerging, and from the gloomy castle, <laughs> which the more gloomy, of which she had heard some mysterious hints, her sick heart recoiled in despair. It's a little bit like a, you ask a child to write, like, mm-hmm. how would you tell us mm-hmm. if you're going towards a scary castle? Yeah. Oh, the woods were gloomy, and the shadows were scary, <laughs> and the noises were scary too, and the mountains were big and gloomy. <laughs> right. <laughs> Be sure to use plenty of description words, kids. Yeah, I, need, I mean, I need so, at least three in every sentence. And so when people talk about how bad the Gothic tradition is, they will make fun of like the language, but there's a mentality that was a Gothic mentality too, that gets taken up by the Brontes in a very unhealthy way, mm-hmm. which you see all over in Jane Eyre. From the deep solitudes in which, to which she was emerging and from the gloomy castle of which she had heard some mysterious hints. Oh, it's a gloomy castle. Yeah, her sick okay. heart recoiled in despair. Her sick heart recoiled in despair. And she experienced that, though her mind was already occupied by peculiar distress, it was still alive to the influence of new and local circumstance. Why else did she shudder at the idea of this desolate castle? I mean, so I figured... What rich fodder for somebody like Jane Austen? Oh, man. Her temperament, her personality, her... 
Just, yeah. So Jane Austen reads this sort of stuff and she's like, oh my goodness. <laughs> Can I point out something though? Yeah. about Because I happen to have read some of these. Anne Radcliffe is the nice version of this. Anne Radcliffe is the socially acceptable version of like Anne Radcliffe is maybe a little bit better than a lot of what's being written because there is stuff that's just pure trash, borderline pornographic, maybe not by our standards today, but certainly by their standards. And there is stuff that really deals in the profane supernatural and in the the more sexual, you know, the BDSM yeah. kind of elements. Anne Radcliffe wants to put her toe in all that stuff and she wants to intrigue you and she wants to draw you in with the promise of that sort of thing. And I'm not saying that she's at all good or healthy. She's not, but she's much more the demure version for ladies. You know, the kind of thing that yeah. you can imagine Mina from Dracula or Lucy like sharing mm-hmm. with each other and kind of giggling well, about. That's what happens with, yeah. The, the yeah, yeah, well, exactly. Main heroine here and her friend but you can kind of read into the fact that nobody's really disgusted with Catherine for reading it either no, it's just kind just... of one of those things like of course a girl's gonna yeah read this there were things like the monk which came later later which yeah. i've read which is pretty a pretty famous one where he just pushes the supernatural and the sex and everything so far that it just becomes a sort of grand guignol yeah. way over the top like you shouldn't read it yep and radcliffe is more like the bad version of Jane Eyre. Yeah, and that's like that. that would be the gothic tradition that Austin was making fun of because yeah. that's what she would have been familiar yeah, with. Yeah, she wouldn't have been reading the, so, the more yeah. trashy stuff. And so it got more trashy as time went on, but I thought it'd be fun since we've done gothic tradition so much to actually just read some excerpts of what Jane Austen would have had in mind. Yeah, it's pretty rape. When, it's, uh, it's pretty yeah. So that's what she had in mind. That's what she's parodying when she writes this book. And she in particular is parodying the people who are attracted to it, but also... Interestingly enough, the people who are proud about the fact that they find that to be trash, mm-hmm. which he does pretty brilliantly with Mr. Is it Thorpe? Right? Yeah, you said she's like disgusted by, I I feel like reading Northanger Abbey, she has some affection for Adolfo. She's probably enjoyed it yeah. in her time. And Well, I don't know disgusted by it, but still, you know. Yeah, no, she looks down on it. She thinks yeah. it's stupid, but I she think. Thinks, she sees how silly it is. It might be like us talking about a Marvel movie. We know it's not high art, but. We enjoy yeah. it. John Wick. It's her John Wick. Yeah, I'm with you there. I think that she probably at some point in her life read and enjoyed these novels because most of her characters have such life because she was that herself at one mm. point. So anyways, that's context. There you go. Well, guys, let's try not to bring the gothic into our patron donor shout out. Mm. Mm. I, I don't want anything that smacks of anything gothic, anything Germanic, anything scary or supernatural. By the way, Anne Radcliffe, she always Scooby-Doo's it at the end. There's always some boring non-supernatural <laughs> explanation. Yeah, is she the one who came up with the word zoinks? Yeah. And pesky kids. I would have gotten yeah. away with it if it weren't for you pesky lady. As does in Toronto, if I'm not mistaken. It was really some of the later stuff that pushed it into, pushed the genre into actual, the actual supernatural. But really what they like to do is just skirt the line of being as provocative as they could without actually... And then the Brontes tried to make it into high art. Yeah. And with Wuthering Heights and Jane Kind of succeeded. Yeah, I they mean, did. those books are here to stay. Say what you will about them. Wuthering Heights is a weird, weird book, but it's pretty good. Yeah, we'll, we'll get to we, it one of these days. Same thing about Jane Eyre. Jane Eyre is a really great. good book. We all, except yeah, for how I, I, it all sort of played out in the end. I mean, Jane Eyre is in one sense terrible, and in one sense it's one of the best books we read, I think. Yeah, like it's, yeah it's ex- well, I think just we all agree that it was amazing, so but it's good. that ending that kind of throws it off. Yeah. Well, there's lots of everything having like the whole school days stuff at Hogwarts mm, was awesome. Yeah. 
Yeah. It's all that stuff surrounding, what's his name? St. Clair? Or St. John. St. John. St. John, yeah. That weirdo. As soon Saint as he John gets involved and... and, and even the early stuff with... Is it Rochester? Rochester's a great... He's fine. ...hero. Until... He just, Anne Radcliffe would have had the good sense to have Rochester just be the bad guy, probably. Yeah. And so you, you flirt the whole time with them flirting with each other. But then you say, eh, actually, she can't go off with that guy. He locked his sister up in the... Attic and he's a monster. Yeah. And her brains are going to get splattered all over the, but he's still going to be okay in the end because he gets blinded. Yeah, that's what actually happened. Yeah, I know. (laughs) Good times. (laughs) Uh, So anyway, nothing, please guys, let's not bring, you know, the guy, I think it's just a trashy genre and I don't Mm -hmm. like it at all. So let's not bring it into the patron thing. Got it. I'm going to now read the names. Of course, you go to patreon.com forward slash the booking. Please help us get to. 2k so we can pay brandon a little something he deserves it and so that we can read ready player two robert and Rhonda, the lovebirds frankenstein brandon i know you're not gonna bring anything gothic into this right find out we're old friends we've gone we're more friends done a lot of a lot of podcasts together the artful <laughs> anthony dodger dracula <laughs> foiled again <laughs> i never see it coming <sighs> mine is a lonely calling little anthony cigar store Frankenstein. The Emerald Chelsea. Dracula. What must a first time listener think? <laughs> What'd you say? <laughs> what must a first time listener like? What is going on? Uh, Inside Jim- jokes. All It's turtles all the way down, baby. Yeah. <laughs> Jimmy Beam and little Annie Oakley. Frankenstein. Now we have two Annie Oakley references in one donor shout out segment. <laughs> we, just really, we really like Annie. Get you Annie Oakley. We can't get enough Annie. Annie Oakley. Okay. Because of anyone named Annie, what are the other Annie references? I mean, Annie, I guess it's Hard Knock Life, Annie. Little Orphan Annie. It's yeah. Hard Knock Just, Life. So, the sun will come out tomorrow. Yep. Right. The Immortal Chelsea E, Jimmy Beam and Little Annie Dracula. Oakley, Lily of the Valley, Andrew, Dr. Lover, Dr. Keith Master, David Money, Don Trucking, John and Jill, Little Baby Max, Jane Katie, we're cold enough. Frankenstein. Frankenstein. Dracula. Frankenstein. Dracula. The Dark Hood, Lord of Death. Nathan, not me. Frankenstein. Midnight Ninja Allen, Return of the Jedediah, Jay of Rock and Ruin, Timothy the Rider of Dawn, Eric and Kate, Camp Jam Kings, are Warm and Love Bees, Manny, 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 Sweet Jamie Frankenstein, Hello, the Keeper of Eternal Darkness, and Laura, the Keeper of Eternal Light, Dracula, Cold Steel, Cody, Jacqueline, Librarian, Barbarian, John Bobadillo, Bob Diggity, and Captain Daniel, his mate, Saxophone Alex, the other Saxophone Alex, Frankenstein, and Dabby, Ryan the Terror, Texas, and Eric of the Cream and Crimson, who are stuck in the cold, please send cheese. Ben Solo and Kylo Ren. Dracula. Frankenstein. John, the Cosmic King of Chaos. Frankenstein. Man, Matt, Thew, the Mind Flare. Dracula. Frankenstein. And here you okay. Get your gun. Frankenstein. Dracula. All right, folks. We'll be back. <laughs>